born in the pandemic era, thriving in the Zoom era, it's Resonance Rewind with Robin Pierce, Jessica Burtis, Pamela Sue Mann, Jonathan Lindsley, Jenny Bill, Kathy Manzo, Alex Lefchuk, and more, sharing lessons from the creatives of yesteryear for the population of today. The ever-dwindling population, because quite frankly, we're still in the pandemic era. Little did the cast know that when they turned up for recording on Thursday, December the 23rd, 1965, that their work would be subsequently reviewed decades later on another edition of Resonance Rewind. What's he going to say about this one then? Robin Pierce, take it away for the summary of The Keeper Part 2. Well, let's start this off in true Dick Tufeld voiceover manner. Last week, as you'll recall, we left um, the Robinsons in dire peril because Dr. Smith had boarded the ship of the Keeper, played by Michael Rennie, in order to try and steal the ship to finally get back to Earth. He twiddled the navigational jelly moulds to no avail, he accidentally let all of these creatures free. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, you're just going to have to listen to last week's broadcast. So everything is now loose. The planet is more danger than dangerous than ever. The keeper himself is irked, threatens the entire family, and as recompense for losing his entire menagerie, demands that they deliver him Will and Penny Robinson. Well, we know the All-American family are never going to let this one go. However, the nefarious Dr. Smith tries to persuade them to acquiesce. Um, We have John and uh, Maureen Robinson trying to offer themselves, the parents. We have the elder kids, Don West and Judy Robinson, offer themselves. And even in a, a fit of conscience, we have the younger kids offer themselves. The, the turning point for the Keeper comes when he's attacked by one of his own beasts, a one-armed vine with, with you know, badness on its mind, um, attacks the, the Keeper, and it's Maureen Robinson that comes to his aid, which re- makes him realise the, the depth of humanity and empathy that we're all capable of, especially the mothering instinct. So he decides to try and help the Robinsons by rounding up all his creatures. And he does this just in time because there is a, a, a large bug with a face of Mothra, but without the wings, which is using the uh, space chariot, their all-terrain vehicle, as some kind of bouncing castle. and it all ends well. Thank heavens for that. Last week, of course, we were unable to actually access the views of Kathy Manso because she was locked out of her apartment with no feasible method of actually getting into the apartment, so therefore unable to actually join us. Quite literally, lost in Lincoln cyberspace. Well, 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 hang on a second, hang on a second. I don't know about everybody else. I want to know how that ended. How did Kathy Manso get into the apartment? 
Okay. I, I'm here to tell you the scoop, guys. It was two hours. <laughs> it took me to get back into the apartment. But it's because I have a key card that's my key to enter my studio. And so the problem wasn't the key card. It was that the battery of the door handle died. So it wasn't even going to read anything. So someone had to come and replace the battery of my door, essentially. And that's how I eventually made it inside. <laughs> we need a spin-off series called The Adventures of Kathy Manso Abroad. Abroad oh. as in another country, not that you are abroad. No, no, I understood. Uh, <laughs> yes, I have tails. That's pretty low. That's pretty. Actually, I don't think I've ever locked myself out of my apartment before abroad. So I guess this was the first. <laughs> Having said that, Kathy, uh, would you like to just rephrase what you thought about last week and then this week and share with us your feelings on this adventure into monochrome wonderment? Yeah, no, of course. Uh, <laughs> it was just entertaining to see an American uh updated nuclear family <laughs> take on all these different trials. I, uh, the impression it gave me, which I don't usually like to try to compare different films with stuff, but what I felt like was happening was, uh, if you guys remember Jurassic Park, not World Park, the original, when it's how that family dynamic kind of works with each other, where it's the kids and uh, <laughs> it's one related person and then like another pair. Just the dynamic of how they communicate to each other was exactly in this, which I found entertaining and, and fun. Um, and also cheesy jokes. I'm a big fan of cheesy. Um, <laughs> and what else? Oh, well, what I liked more, I liked, I think I liked part two more. Um, it, it made me want more, if, if that makes sense. And this whole time, I think I was just kind of on the edge of my seat being like, but what happens? <laughs> so that's my retake on it. A classic cliffhanger ending. Okay, Jonathan, you may well have been around and in our temporal space material when we were watching Lost in Space. Were you a fan back in the day? Uh, how does it stand up in the 21st century? Um, was I a fan? No, I wasn't a fan, unfortunately. I... I um... I disliked this program intensely, um, mainly because I, as a child, could not understand how Dr. Zachary Smith ever got to be titled Doctor, seeing as he appeared to me to be something of a moron. Um, I mean, uh, completely inept, totally incapable of doing anything right and, and, and utterly stupid. Um, I was also intrigued by the fact that... Um, the leader of the Robinsons was a professor. I uh, couldn't quite see that either. Um, and just all in all, it, it, it drove me crazy. But yeah, the whole idea of, um, but it is kind of like, um, like space Shakespeare, isn't it? I mean, they all speak like they're proclaiming, especially Dr. Smith, who, who, who uses wonderful words like nefarious and, and, um, and, and, and many of his, his expressions sound very kind of Iago-like. Um, and I, in the end, um, I, I was just um, slightly depressed by the whole experience because I just thought it was sloppy, sloppy writing. Um, it made no sense. and None of it made any sense to me. There was, I mean, a force field that you could walk out of but couldn't walk into and then people walked into it without switching it off. Um, just there were so many things wrong with it. It just couldn't um, sustain any believability for me. So sadly, uh, now I switched off. Um, I do remember that it was it was of its period, I suppose, 
I thought this episode was talking about slavery. I think this this episode was also talking about um, racial equality. And I suppose at the time, civil rights were just beginning to be explored in in America and and people were um, become, I mean, the whole idea of, of, uh, you know, the the civil rights movement was growing. So I assumed that this was a kind of take by the writers, but it was so sloppily written and so badly written. Um, I I suspected that the, um, it wasn't a vine that attacked um, Zachary, uh, that attacked um, the keeper, wasn't it um, the spider's claw? Wasn't it the spider that we saw later that got away? Um, because wasn't that the same claw that came through the roof of the, um, whatever it was called, the rover? The chariot, vehicle, the chariot. The chariot, the chariot vehicle, which seemed extraordinarily designed with no doors for some reason, just windows to climb through. I just thought the whole thing was a, was a mess. I mean, I couldn't believe that any writers would write that, and I couldn't believe that any director would direct it, and I couldn't believe that any actors could act it that badly. So overall... Um, slightly depressing, but no, I wasn't a fan when I was 11 either. So, <laughs> so there you go. I think the message is coming through, Jonathan, that you're not necessarily uh, one of uh, the, the series' main uh, proponents and advocates. No, I'm not um, going to be. I'm not going to be supporting it as a series. Which is I don't which think is good. Bring it back. <laughs> I mean, they have tried, and certainly it'd be interesting to get your view as we did uh, when we compared it with the updated version on Netflix, which is a completely mm. different uh, scenario. This, of course, was uh, uh, written by uh, Barney uh, Slater and indeed polished by Anthony Wilson, apparently, in terms of uh, development. Jonathan uh, Harris had, at this stage, as we discussed last week, started beginning to enhance his, his uh, uh, shall we say, more eccentric mannerisms. But I still actually have to say, I, I did like some of the uh, the quotes which came uh, across the actual system. I mean, especially with respect to um, Don and uh, um, the uh, uh, Professor Robinson uh, with the, the classic line, trying to stop that lizard with a pipe is like trying to stop a war with a toothpick. I mean, that could surely be lifted straight from today's headlines in terms of, you know, giant lizards and other areas as well. Kathy, what about your uh, feeling vis-a-vis the characters? I mean, Jonathan's given, a, I think, a very honest reflection there of how I have also felt at times, because there are moments where I feel exactly like Jonathan. There are other moments where I actually suspend my disbelief entirely, realise we've switched into another dimension and believe that we're actually living in a world where Zachary Smith is actually running the planet. What are your thoughts? <laughs> My thoughts are, it's it's funny because everything that Jonathan hates, which fair, I completely understand, is all the things I found hysterical about this. I think like that's why I was just so into it being like, what is happening? Um, <laughs> but uh, so my take on it is a little bit <laughs> just more optimistic. But I guess that's like if once I'm watching something, I'm convinced that I'm like, I'll find something to be entertained by, even if it's itself. But um, <laughs> the I, I think <laughs> what surprised me the most were the horrific facial expressions well horrific or hysterical depending on your perspective of dr smith like his actual facial expressions of communicating went past his acting that i've never seen anyone quite do before and (laughs) uh and he always chose like five to go to fix with after he said something i I don't know if you guys caught that but that's (laughs) that's something i definitely want to identify with that character um but I did like the family dynamic just because it reminded me of any other American family dynamic I know almost. 
but uh, you know, I was leaning into cheesy. <laughs> uh, you not only talk like a fool, you act like one, as uh, the keeper obviously says to Smith when he uses his unique, and I'm surprised you didn't actually pick up on this, uh, Jonathan, his unique lie detector test of uh, basically having a flashing light on his belt when somebody's actually telling the truth, the, telling untruths. Okay, so far we kind of see where we're going with respect to this, I sense. And I sense, Robin, your uh, role and indeed uh, Jenny Bill's role as uh, curmudgeonly individuals is now being once again taken over by Jonathan. But let's turn to Jen Jessica Burgess. Jessica, you were with us last week. You've stuck with us for part two. What are your thoughts on the Keeper part two, the Owen Allen line, which was actually recorded literally just two days before Christmas Day, 1965? So I feel like I, I think I enjoyed part one more. Um, but this one was still fun. Um, I I'm staying with a friend, so I watched it with her and her parents had watched the show as kids, and they, you know, they they laughed when they saw the doctor show up. They remembered him. Um, I think you know the whole plot. I think would have resolved itself had they just kind of turned the ray gun on the dot on the alien that showed up. Um, I, but I get this was like a family show. So like, <laughs> you know, they had to be peaceful, I guess, about the problem. Um, but I thought actually this, um, had some impressive effects for a show that came out when it did. Um, I don't know, there was like a second monster that came out and it looked like some spider fly thing. And I thought it was actually pretty, pretty, um, scary for a kid's show and I thought it was pretty pretty well done for the time so I thought it was um still an interesting episode I think I just the the plot kind of dragged on a bit and I was wondering when um they were finally going to get rid of this alien who they're being so nice to even though he keeps trying to kidnap their kids over and over again <laughs> um so I, I I'm glad to see it concluded um but yeah, the, the first part was better. Still fun though, still fun. Yes, uh, as I've stated, I do particularly like the robot, which Jonathan Harris refers to as Claude, as in C-L-A-W-D, Claude. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the spider that bounces up and down on the chariot uh, does, I believe, appear in an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea uh, later on in, in one of those particular episodes. Robin, is, is what Jonathan said like a knife through your heart? Is it a case of, oh my goodness, you know, how can people not see the greatness of Michael Rennie in this particular uh, extravaganza? What are your thoughts on this? Well, um, I found it interesting that um, Jonathan said, you know, were they thinking about uh, civil rights and stuff like that? Because I, I remembered that there was a season two episode and season two goes into real slapstick comedy and it's it had a hard thing to watch but there was an episode called the golden man that i remember and i'll just read quickly what gary Girani had to say about it uh, the golden man again written by barney slater um a lesson about prejudice lost in space style the robinsons must take sides in a confrontation between two alien civilizations, the representative of one is a handsome, courteous golden man, the other an inhospitable frog. Guess who's the bad guy? But going on to this one, 
Um, yeah, the space chariot, it does seem to be made out of old glass, but it had sliding doors to let them in and out. It was actually a, they used a, a model for the long shots in that one, obviously, um, but they had built the thing full size and it could and was driven off set and around Monument Valley where they filmed a lot of the um, exteriors for the first season. Dr. Smith himself is, and I said this last week, an annoying character. He was a, a last-minute um, uh, addition to the cast uh, as a saboteur to kill the, the, um, the Robinsons, but uh, Jonathan Harris built his own role up by essentially becoming a pantomime dame who screamed at everything. Now, this cold, calculating character made himself into this sort of really effeminate, screaming, you know, drag act, really. And I, I find it annoying. But you flip it on its, on its end, and the, the, the Robinsons themselves, they are such bland characters. I mean, when I watched this show originally, I was six, and I could identify with Will Robinson because we weren't far off the same age. But looking at it as an adult, I find the, may, the, the, the rest of the cast so bland. The, the Robin, Judy changed out. her hair again in this episode. Well, you know, good for Judy. <laughs> but without, Robin, without uh, Dr. Smith, you really would have no colour, no spice. It, it's just that he overspices it sometimes. Now, coming on to this episode, I, I discussed with you, um, really, off, off the record yesterday, um, Alex, that normally I prefer the setup to a resolution on, on most two-part stories. It's true of the Menagerie episode of Star Trek. It's actually gasp true of the, the Avengers movies. I much prefer Infinity War to Endgame. And it had been a few years since I'd seen this one. And I assumed the same would be true again, because I knew there was a happy ever after ending. And, you know, once again, they were left with an alien who could hop onto their planet, hop off their planet and just leave them stranded. Nobody seems to help them out, even though they, in other episodes, freely give bits and pieces of their own spaceship, which they need to get off the ship. They don't actually get off the planet, I'm sorry. They don't actually get off the planet until the first episode of season two, because they suddenly find out it's volcanic and about to blow up. Then they can fix the ship, you know? Spoilers, Robin, spoilers. <laughs> well, that's the whole basis of, of um, season two, people they get off the planet they spend about four or five episodes in space before they land on a different planet which looks exactly like this one because they're on the same soundstage but it's in color exactly it's the planet technicolor anyhow onto this one when i watched it this morning i thought yeah it's just going to be dull we know what's going to happen but I had absolutely forgotten the giant spider with Mothra's face that attacks the space chariot. 
And I was just sitting there transfixed because even though, yes, it looks really dorky these days, but for 1966 and a TV budget, I thought, this is not half bad. And it's actually made me reappraise the concluding part of The Keeper. If I was to tell you, all right, look, you, you, I need you to watch Lost in Space at its best, I would be saying The Keeper, two-parter, and I'd be saying War of the Robots. Um, I'd be very hard-pressed to find you anything in season two, apart from maybe The Golden Man. Um, season three was, again, hit and miss, but they tried to make it more serious. But they, they had another go at tolerance in that, where the Jupiter 2 lands on Earth in the 1940s in a sort of backwards America, and the, the locals basically want to shoot them because they're aliens. So, you know, it had some good... This is one of the better ones, in my humble opinion, despite all of Jonathan Harris's chaotic screaming. And I really don't like pantomime humour, and I like slapstick even less. But the constant screen screaming and gurning really is annoying. In the authorised biography of Owen Allen's Lost in Space by Mark Cushon, uh, we have Jonathan Harris quoted as saying, re his uh, Mr Smith incar incarnation, it is a creation of mine of which I am inordinately proud, I have to tell you. I am very proud of that man. I dreamed up what you saw. I patterned him after every kid I've ever, no ever known. Quite seriously, you know what kids look like when they're upset. That's what I did. I wept, I cried, I lied. And I was the idol of every child in the world because I got away with it. Jonathan, obviously your namesake, Jonathan Harris, was not necessarily your idol at the time because he got away with it. Well, to be honest with you, uh, again, I thought, I thought Jonathan Harris uh, wasn't, the worst thing about this program, I mean, the, 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 it was the logic and the complete lack of ability in the writers that, that got me mostly. The, 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 just the sheer idiocy of the, how far away was the keeper's ship? They all went looking for the kids and, and just happened to come across. But I mean, then they came back and it took them like a day to get back. But then when they were going another time, they, it took them two minutes to get to the, none of it made any sense. Uh, it just drove me crazy. Um, but but Jonathan Harris, I thought, actually, was a typical example of, a, of an actor who was kind of not well directed. That was his problem. I, I think he probably actually watching his performance, he just he did get away with it in the sense that he was allowed to do that. Um, and he did scream like a girl and he did play it like a pantomime dame. And I, I, I totally agree with uh, Robin's sort of analysis of that. It was like that. But then if you allow an actor to go completely over the top, that's what you'll get. Um, I mean, there was no restraint um, operated by the producers or the director on his performance. And I think that that as, as, a, as an actor, uh, he needed a, a good friend to tell him to tone it down a little bit. And, and, and then he might have uh, might have actually allowed because he clearly had some talent. I mean, uh, he had a nice voice. Um, he was able um, quite often to make some of the lines sound almost Shakespearean, as I said. Um, and so I don't think that Jonathan Harris was a bad actor. What I think he was, uh, he was in a bad series and he wasn't uh, well directed. So he was allowed to be um, over the top and, and awful. Um, and I get what uh, Kathy was saying as well about the fact that he was amusing, funny. I mean, you could laugh at 
what he did. But again, that lack of believability. I mean, if Will Robinson knew as much about the robot as Dr. Smith, what on earth was Dr. Smith's role on that spaceship? What what on earth was he doing there? I mean, was he a doctor? Was he could he was he a medical? Originally doctor? he was a saboteur. Oh, that's right. He was a saboteur and he gave the um the Robinsons their physical check before they went on board. Ah. But oh, he, he was, a medical he was also okay. involved in programming the robot, as I recall. And back in the, the original five uh, episodes which kind of set up the series, he commands the robot to sabotage the ship. And it's Will Robinson that figured out the tone of voice that he uses. And they did this in The Keeper Part One. You know, to to let him out, he he would just open the door, his voice my mechanical bit, and friend. The robot would let him out. There's something like, you know, open the door, my good man. Now I have a question um, for for Jonathan. Hmm. Very much take what you said about uh, Jonathan Harris, but as a professional actor, okay, let's let's put the scenario. You, and director, Robin, uh, and director. Well, this makes it even better. You have been cast as Dr. Zachary Smith in 1966 in Lost in Space. How would you approach the role and how would you deliver an iconic line? Well, as a performer, I think I would look for uh, my uh, truth in the character. Uh, I think I would try to discover a, um, a modicum of logic behind my actions. Um, and then I think I would attempt to find a character that allowed, for me anyway, in that particular uh, position, given that role, I would want to actually not be so obviously evil to the people that I was trying to sabotage. I in other words, innuendo, sir. I would like to be, I would like, <laughs> thank you. I would like to be, I would like to think that I could fool the Robinsons into thinking I was a decent person. But secretly, and the audience would get that I was deep down resentful and angry and wanted to sabotage. That, I think, is the essence of the character. What I think happened was uh, Jonathan Harris was allowed to let the Robinsons see what a complete horrible person he was, how evil, what he lied. I ought to break your neck. Kind of and then... And then the bit that I didn't understand was why they tolerated him. Having learned that, why did they allow him to stay around? What, what, what was his function on this abandoned spaceship on a planet that they didn't really understand? I mean, he didn't fix anything. He didn't work on anything. He didn't really have any function, it seemed to me. And as I said, if his function was to run the robot, then Will understood how to do that pretty quickly. So it can't have been rocket science. For them to um, for them to do that, so uh, that would be my approach, uh, Robin. I would try and find um, some sort of um, cunning reality um, in How the character. How would you del deliver a, a an iconic line? An iconic line. Yes. Uh, well, I suppose um, I can't remember any iconic lines let, from let, the show. Let's use that one. Um, I, re I resent your innuendo, sir, or indeed okay. uh, the, uh, the the. the I'll, I'll give you a lead-in for this, Jonathan. I'll, I'll use the robot thing. Immediate danger right. has passed. Period of a reasonable quiet will ensue. Right. And then what do I say? I resent. I resent your innuendo, sir. Yeah, we're, we're mixing and matching from different areas here, but yes. Well, I, well, I think again, if I was, who was I delivering that line to? The robot or the 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 
oh, oh to the robot. Oh, in which case, I would I would say um, well, I would I would I would argue with the director. I would I would say to the director, please don't make me say that line to the robot because, to be honest with you, he I wouldn't call a robot sir, and he's just a mechanical object. So um, <clears throat> I think if I was delivering it to one of the Robinsons, I would say I, I truly resent your innuendo, sir. And I would mean it. But behind that, the audience would know that I didn't really resent that and that I really wasn't um, an, an, an honourable person. And they major. would then, and they would do the work. That was the point. The audience should be doing the imaginary work. They should be thinking, this guy is he evil? Yes, he is evil. But he's fooled the Robinsons. And then there would have been some tension in the plot. But there was no tension for me. Absolutely none at all. And as with my director's hat on, I'd be saying that to the cast. I'd be saying, look, there's no tension in this because you all know that Robinsons, uh, that, that, that all the Robinsons know that Zachary Smith is a liar, that, he's, that he's, he's out to do them down, that he would sell the children to the highest bidder, that he would, he would sneak off the planet on his own and leave them all abandoned. They all know that straight away so what why do they tolerate this man why don't they just lock him up in a in a room and and give him a, a cup of tea every now and again i mean it just doesn't make sense we will we will clearly have to bring back angela cartwright who of course played penny robinson back to the program so that she can actually argue the case for, for jonathan harris etc because obviously it's it's a little difficult to actually get back to jonathan because he's no longer with us on this planet but there we are no, jessica i i, I want to thank jonathan for for humoring me there because that was really fascinating thank you yeah <laughs> jessica back to yourself because clearly you shared it with your parents with your friends and so on uh, let's go to that classic line characters which one for you in the keeper part two did you think yes that's okay i think i liked don in this episode i think he was um very outspoken and a, a contrast i think a bit to the rest of the Robinsons who tend to be very passive, very overly tolerant. Um, and, but I think my favorite character in this was the Iguanodon. I love the Iguanodon scenes. It was great. <laughs> Seeing Liz just walking around and, you know, going through rocks and looking like a big monster. It was cute. <laughs> Classic Owen Allen. Uh, and of course, the uh, unicorn, of course, last week's winner from yourself, Jessica, was originally written into this series, but they decided that Penny couldn't have two pets and she already had Debbie the Gloop, uh, which we didn't <laughs> see too much of in the series. But Debbie the Gloop, of course, who was basically a monkey with a, uh, a kind of uh, a furry hat on um, is, is, again, another whole experience, which I'm sure can still connect with us today. Uh, so anyway, the Iguanodon, giant Iguanodon, of course. Gets it for yourself. Kathy, what about your favourite character from either part one or part two? Oh, I mean, it was a collective experience, but I'm going to have to give it to the monsters. They're probably my favourite. All of them. Um, monsters slash animals, depending on your perspective. But <laughs> I, I preferred them the most. Also, I was just kind of excited. I feel like I felt exactly how Jessica felt being like, oh, man, look what Ali did that. OK, I'm into this. <laughs> so made me focus a little bit more. Can we ask you if you have a favourite, Jonathan? Was it possibly the tremendous emotional work put in by uh, Maureen Robinson? Uh, or would it be uh, Professor John Robinson? Or, or would it be any of the monsters who actually run around uh, terrorising the planet uh, and so on? Actually, I'm just going to say Michael Rennie as the keeper because, I mean, he, he, 
the poor man, I mean, he was a very fine actor, Michael Rennie, and he was given this appalling role of, of, of delivering some of the worst lines I've ever heard written and, and holding out a kind of giant torch, which he waved about in, 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 in very strange manner and with a wonderful sound effect behind which controlled all the monsters. So I have to say that, that Michael Rennie, of all the people in that show as, as actors, um, I, thought, I thought did a creditable performance, but even, even his beard annoyed me. I mean, what on earth were the makeup people thinking of when they, when they gave him that kind of tatty, stuck-on, terrible beard? It was, it was just so awful. I mean, so many things were awful about it. I mean, the staff, when it fell on the floor and stopped working so he could get strangled, and then two minutes later when Mrs Robinson arrived, he picked it up and it was working again. What, what, what was all that about? I mean, what, how, how are we supposed to accept these, you know, as you say, how could we suspend, or I couldn't suspend my disbelief, I'm afraid, under Some, any circumstances. Sometimes, Jonathan, life is just like a bad dream. That's my experience. <laughs> so we go. Yes. Uh, okay, and Robin, are you sticking with the keeper, or are you going to switch it to... No, to, to, no, to, Michael Rennie got it last week. Uh, he, he can't be greedy. He can't be greedy. <laughs> this week, because I'd completely forgotten the sequence, I mean, it's got to be about 10, 15 years since I've seen this episode i'm going to give it to wingless mothra bouncing up and down on the space ah. chariot i i loved that sequence and i've no idea how i'd forgotten about it because that's even elevating this one's score for me well can i, get, can I just ask one question as well um alex sorry just before we go did anybody else notice that one of the monsters that was escaping from the spaceship looked very like chewbacca did you, yes, did he was the refugee notice? from Voice at the Bottom of the Sea. They were just these stock costumes that they had. There was only about five of them that kept going around in a row. Yes, there was a yeah, cyclops. Yeah. There was like a mummy wearing a polo neck. There was something with two heads. Um, there was a bat with a, with a, with a beak. Uh, you know, we, we'd seen them all before and we would see them again. Ah, right. Yes. Okay. I just wondered if it had inspired George Lucas, you see, to write uh, Chewbacca as a character because he'd seen that walking carpet. Chewbacca <laughs> was actually modelled after Lucas's own dog, which was well. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Thank you. You learn so much on this show. <laughs> so let's go around the team for their scores. Jessica, what's your score for The Keeper Part 2? I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half. I still enjoyed it. And um, I'm glad we got to see the conclusion to the keeper's story, even if he is still out there at large. It was nice to see the second part. Mm. Looking for children who can actually go on his spacecraft and actually uh, be taken <laughs> as part of the, the, uh, uh, the, the keeper's collection, which is fine, uh, with his wand and staff in hand. Jonathan, is it more than three? Uh, no, it's less than three. It's a two. Um, and it just sneaked in. Having said that, my new my experience of Resonance Rewind, one of the things I did think would have worked well in this if they'd been puppets. I think that you, I'm, I might have actually enjoyed this show had they been puppets, because I think they'd have been slightly less wooden than the actors who were currently in it. Yeah. Angela Cartwright, hopefully you're not listening to this. If you are, we still love you, Angela. You'll be back. Don't worry. Sorry, Angela. <laughs> and Bill Moomy, he might not even do the show now. Um, Kathy, from your own point of view, what's your score? Oh, man. It, <laughs> it's hard because you just heard like two extreme scores. And I mean, I agree with a lot of what they both had to say. So I, 
I did enjoy myself as I watched this, but I enjoyed it for the reasons that I just found it so easily entertaining. Like you don't take anything full truth kind of way, take it very lightheartedly, fall into the cheesiness of it. Um, and if you're like me in that way, then I would definitely score this a seven. Which is the same score I'm sticking with part one and part two. I both gave them seven. Uh, flawed. Uh, certainly this is uh, not a show which would ever wean me off Star Trek. Um, I think uh, I can understand both Isaac Asimov and uh, um, Gene Rodenberry saying that this very much insults the, the, the viewer in, in, in a lot of ways. But now, in my dotage, actually, it's quite fun just to realise that maybe life is just nonsense after all, and it doesn't make sense at all. Robin, where are you scoring it? Well, first of all, I'd just like to distance myself from the rest of you in case Bill Moomy or Angela Cartwright are listening. Um, I'm not with these people, guys. They kidnapped <laughs> me. Sometimes I agree with them, um, but not on this occasion. But when I do agree with them, it just think Stockholm Syndrome, okay? Um, let's see. This one, I... Because of that sequence with the space chariots, I thought they didn't use that thing after the Hungry Sea. So I was delighted to see it again. I, I'm, I'm going to go nine on this one. I am actually going nine on this one. Because as, as a fan since the mid-60s, this was everything that I liked about the series, which actually brought me into sci-fi. Some people might say, you know, if this was your beginning... Why on earth did you ever carry on? But hey, here I am. <laughs> because at the same time as this was being aired in America, uh, a certain show called Batman was actually airing Fine Feathered Finks, to which Irwin Allen said, why are they getting so many more viewers than we are? We best do something similar. And so they did. Uh, so, Jonathan, it does get even better or worse, depending on your point of view in terms of seasons two and three. That concludes our first ever two-parter as far as Residence Rewind is concerned, but not Residence Rewind because same time, same channel. Next week, we take it real. We get real with a vengeance. We go out to the Belters. We talk about the wonderful Dulcinea and we have the first episode of the series, The Expanse, which is being analyzed in depth by the team on Residence Rewind, The Expanse, episode one. Keep on resonating. Mm-hmm.